Hello fellow time travelers, we are now part of the Direction Point Podcast Network, a podcast network specifically devoted to Doctor Who podcasts including the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, the Police Box in a Junkyard Podcast, and Time Streams. You can find the Direction Point Network at directionpoint.org. Check out all of our sister podcasts and enjoy your travels. Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Cheshki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. This is John Leeson, and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. Hello, fellow time travelers. Tony Whit here. As we began working on this episode, we received the sad news that illustrator and painter Chris Achilles had died from complications of a stroke at the age of 74. Achilles was born in Cyprus in 1949 and moved with his family to the UK in 1959. There, he studied art and throughout the 70s and 80s became well known for his work on album covers, movie posters, and conceptual art for films such as Willow and Heavy Metal. To Doctor Who fans, of course, he's best known for the unique vision he brought to the covers of the first Target novelizations. He ended up contributing over 30 covers for the Target line over the course of his career. Ask a fan the first thing that comes to mind when they think of the novelization for the Dinosaur Invasion, and they will likely bring up the famous kaklak that leaps out from Chris's rendering of that book's cover, a sound effect that provided the name of a collection of his artwork for the series. Although other artists would eventually take over from Achilles, his covers remain fan favorites. His influence can be felt even in the covers he himself did not create. And if Terence Dix can broadly be called the voice of the Doctor novelizations, Chris Achilles can rightly be called the face of those novelizations. He will be missed.
Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the swampy task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Sorry, you try coming up with these every other week. That's <laughs> not an easy thing. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a not swampy at all three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts. This time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast the glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Hey, baby. How you doing? I'm good. How's your mom and them? How's what? How's your mom and them? <laughs> it's a New Orleans thing. Oh. <laughs> yeah. If you do a search for yat accent... Y-A-T, it'll come up, I think, anyway. I have no idea. <laughs> it's my belief in the internet and may be misplaced. If you like what you're hearing, though I don't know why. Do not doubt our overlords. Yes, exactly. If you like what you're hearing, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you keep them on a swamp moon orbiting another planet just to say thank you for willing to help us stay on the virtual air i came up with that on the fly and boy did it sound like it <laughs> and as usual we'd like to thank our regular patrons bart lammy rick taylor toby bengelsdorf jay barry the video junkyard podcast the doctor collectors podcast hans wax stephen pickering james somnall dave davis and simon painter thank you all yes thank you thank you I, I mean, I, I guess that's as much as this book deserves, so it's not so bad. <laughs> we should do it on the fly. Yeah, I don't even know why we came up with notes, to be honest. <laughs> we also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue with the key to time season with our discussion of Terence Dick's novelization of Robert Holmes' script for The Power of Kroll. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Power of Kroll, adapted by Terence Dick's from the script by Robert Holmes that aired from 12-23-78 to 1-13-79, published by Target in May 1980. As of this recording in December 2021, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 128 pages. You'll notice that audiobooks are back, mm -hmm. because there's no longer an author who is objecting to the quality of the novelization so much. I don't think that's the reason why they didn't have audiobooks, but <laughs> there we are. As I said last time, we are still in what I believe is the only time that we are reading a set of stories both in story order and in publication order. The last two stories in the Key to Time sequence that we've read were published in March and April of 1980. This one was published in May, and the next one is published in June, and that's the last one of the season. Then Philip Hinchcliffe does The Keys of Marinus in August, and the whole thing goes off the rails. Also, because this one is not based on a David Fisher script, there's actually an audiobook for it. Okay, I actually have that in the notes. <laughs> Never mind. I thought I was going off script, but I'm not. This script 
is former script editor Robert Holmes's least favorite for the series, even more so than the Crotons back in Troughton's era for a number of reasons. He specifically wanted to write a story that echoed the plight of Native Americans, with a colonizer group running them out of their original lands and economic interests forcing them into even further difficulties. Unfortunately, he was asked by the higher-ups at the BBC to tone down the humorous content that the show was becoming notorious for, meaning that all of the wittiness that marked his first script for this season, The Rebos Operation, and indeed any of his other scripts, is notably missing here. Believe it or not, that business with the doctor hitting a high note to break the glass window is considered toned down. Oh, God. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, interesting. I would not have said, oh, this story is markedly missing in humor. Oh, yeah. Well, that's... <laughs> I think that's mainly Terrence Sticks actually going from the shooting script and maybe incorporating some of the stuff that Tom Baker does on screen, though he doesn't incorporate all of it. We'll have to talk about some of those things because they're kind of ridiculous. The other requirement which he had just as much issue with, came from script editor Anthony Reed, who asked that the story include the largest monster ever to appear on the show. Holmes, quite rightly, thought that this was a mistake, as the BBC couldn't be trusted to do even man-sized monsters convincingly, <laughs> let alone enormous ones. At least someone at the time thought to complain about that. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> the shooting of the story itself was also a challenge, as they did nine days of location filming, including two night shoots in the marshes of Suffolk. The problem is, as the actor soon discovered, there was no place to actually go between takes, because there was literally the chance of getting stuck in the mud if you did. For obvious reasons, K-9 could not be included in this one, and since the actor Martin Jarvis had to drop out of production at the last minute, actor John Leeson was given his one and only on-screen appearance playing Dugin, or Dugin, or I don't know how they pronounce it on screen. The other challenge was the Swampy's makeup, which used a green water-resistant dye produced in Germany, but the makeup artist forgot to order the special chemical needed to remove the dye. <laughs> So all of the actors playing Swampies had to take chemical baths to get rid of it, and even then they were tinted green for some time after filming had wrapped. <laughs> oh, man. So imagine having to explain that down the pub. Why are you all green? Are you not feeling well? Oh, no, it's a show I was working on. Oh, is it that bad? You look ill. No, 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 no. <laughs> it would just go on and on. Yeah. Other noteworthy bits are the casting of John Abeniri in his fourth appearance on the show and who had previously appeared in a BBC production of The Last of the Mohicans as Chingachgook. So good casting there, because he plays our rank one, so it makes sense to cast him as a uh, native. Mm -hmm. The other noteworthy actor was Philip Maddock as Fenner, who was very disappointed to find himself playing such a small role after playing Solon in Brain of Morbius and the ill-fated Broccoli, yeah, that's the character's name, Broccoli, <laughs> in Dalek's Invasion Earth 2150 AD with Peter Cushing. Yeah, he was expecting to play the other major character, Thawne, and didn't realize that he was going to be playing Fenner, who was much less interesting. Philip Maddock was a very good actor, and to put him in a small role like that is, I know, they say there are no small roles, only small actors, but this one was a small role. Yeah. So, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Jenny, would you be willing to do the honors for us? Yes. 
the huge octopus-like crawl lived deep in the swamps of a humid, steamy planet. To the native swamp warriors, Kroll was an angry, mythical god. To the money-grabbing alien technicians, Kroll was a threat to a profit-making scheme. In their search for another segment of the key to time, the Doctor and Romana have to face the suspicion of the lagoon dwellers, the stupidity of the technicians, and finally, the power of Kroll. The Power of Kroll is a novel in a key to time sequence, also available to Ribos Operation, The Stones of Blood, and The Androids of Tar. Coming soon, the Armageddon Factor. Yes, you can tell that they were really pounding the fact that they were publishing these in the order that they came, mm -hmm. which is really unusual for Target books, especially in the same season. This has only happened a couple of times before, but never for almost a full season. So yeah, first impressions. Jenny, what was your first impression when I corralled you into this again? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? I'm always so thrilled to, to read books like these. The, you know, cover. Uh, once again, I was confronted with this idea of like, wow, does Tom Baker, um, does he just really look like Andy Samberg or like what's going on with this? And, and then I reviewed and I was like, well, no, that answer is no. But but this picture, again, um, sometimes I, I think Andy Samberg time travels to the cover of these novels. The crow looks scary. Uh, that that was cool. I, I like that the the doctor on this cover seems to have little animal pins on his shirt lapels. Yes, a he has ducks. Little penguin maybe and a duck. Uh, that's that's charming, you know. <laughs> Overall, first impression. I would be curious to to know what you all think because I was surprisingly disappointed by this one, which usually I'm not with dicks. There's still things to like about it as there always is, but I was left a little a little confused. <laughs> Okay, I, that's fair. Uh, Dalton, what was your first impression? The the word Kroll automatically makes me think of Nick Kroll and the Kroll Show. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So no, no. I, I, just, I just have the image of <laughs> that office girl spitting out water or her cheeks full of water in my head. So that is like first initial. And then it's like, wait, no, that has nothing to do with this. Much like Jenny, I don't think this looks like Tom Baker at all on the cover. It's actually a really nice cover. The artistry yeah. is really, it's really well done. Yeah, the crawl in the background is terrifying. They describe it as octopus-like, but I don't know. It reminds me a little bit more of Audrey 2 from Little Shop of Horrors yes. than Cephalopod. <laughs> you know, I, I've been along for the ride with all of the segments of the key to time. So I immediately thought that was gonna somehow be the fifth segment <laughs> and sure enough yeah how did you ever guess well yeah this this story is not a complete piece of trash but it definitely is more underwhelming than i was hoping for <laughs> okay yeah and i have to admit this is not my favorite of the entire key to time season i mean i really don't like androids of tara either because i have no interest in prisoner of zenda or anything that even sends it up but this one it's like uh just sits there kind of like kroll down in his watery pits yeah yeah i don't know if it's if it's just time to start but maybe you have some context on this tony i just <laughs> i have questions because a lot of the story felt like people just talking and like nothing happening and things yeah. were very repetitive and it, there was a whole lot of, and I, I checked the page numbers to make sure that I wasn't stroking <laughs> out 
which, you know, is a danger on any given day in, in our pandemic existence. But there is repetition of the doctor assuring Ramana that Kroll is real on one page and then 10 page later, they have kind of like the same conversation uh-huh. about it again. And the number of times that these godforsaken technicians are standing there being like, look at the radar. There's the crawl. Is it moving? It's not moving. No, it's coming at us. Nope, it's still over there. And like nothing is actually right. happening. I was like, what the fuck is going on? It seemed like this was a very compressed story that really got stretched out. And I was wondering what was happening kind of with the original script or on the screen that maybe they told Terrence Dix, hey, this has to be a certain number of pages long. And he was like, well, shit, son, but okay. Um, I don't know. Help me understand this. Well, I think it goes back to Terrence Dix always trying to do his best to adapt Robert Holmes' scripts as best he can. The problem is, for once, he's given a really lackluster Robert Holmes script. Mm -hmm. Mm. You can tell that Holmes is not enjoying writing this at all because he's having to strip it of any of the wittiness that he normally puts in it. There's really not much of a story to it because there's not much at stake if you think about it. Because, sure, okay, they're going to try to fire a rocket and it may come down and hit Kroll and also destroy the Swampies and them with it and it'll burn off the atmosphere of the satellite. And that's it. I mean, that sounds that sounds really cold, but compared to some Doctor Who stories where the stakes are much higher, yeah, this one's like... Uh, <laughs> I think that's why you have what really does feel like padding with those scenes with the technicians. And when you have them on the page, there's no ignoring it. it it's just straight up padding. There's not a lot of exposition in those scenes that actually contributes to what's going to happen, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it seems like, too, we've basically just swapped out corridors on a space station or, you know, tunnels in a cave for running around in a marsh it's mm-hmm. it's the same kind of back and forth we're going to from one location to the next and back to the first and then back to the next just yeah over and over again which doesn't seem to drive anything at all apt comparison dalton i hadn't realized that that's what was going on but you're absolutely yeah. right and i think it's also that that's not where holmes's heart is with the story because if he's trying to do a story about the plight of native americans specifically, then he's much more interested in talking about the Swampies and how they're being oppressed by the people who are running the refinery and how they've been moved off of Delta Magna and they've been moved to this moon and their reverence for this god thing. But it's not quite interesting enough to hold anything by itself. Yeah, I don't know if it's just because I'm very much fresh off of, of Dune, having ah. seen the, the new movie, the old movie, read the book, <laughs> starting on uh, the, the next and the, the sequel now, although I don't know if I can actually recommend this one to anybody. But yeah. um, <laughs> I was like, okay, so we have these people of the lake. I, maybe that would be their politically correct term. I don't know if Swampies is supposed to be a, a slur, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> since that's the, the phrase that our colonizing technicians are using for them, but also that the doctor uses. I'm taking the name back. <laughs> yeah, the re- reclaiming Swampies. <laughs> and in the beginning of this first chapter, we have this nice opening paragraph. It was a world of water 
lagoons the size of seas, blah, 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 water streaming over here. Even when it wasn't raining, water seemed to hang in the air. It was no place for men, but men lived there all the same. And I thought, oh, this is very reminiscent of like opposite of Dune. Here is like a water planet. And the narration is overtly saying that this place sucks. Nobody should want to live here. But somehow these swampies managed to live here. And I thought, oh, cool. So they maybe are going to be set up to be very admirable, 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 yes, in, in the way that they are living in this planet that would be so hostile to everybody else. But that like never came. It was just like, okay, they're there. They are referred to as savages. And very unfortunately, they seem to kind of fulfill that stereotype because all they do is have blood sacrifices and whatever. But apparently they're like into guns. And they, they know that the guns are bad. That this, whatever Ram Dutt guy gave them. That's it. Like, they don't really amount to much. Even though the story names them as saying, like, the sons of Earth are positioning them as noble savages. I'm like, I can't even find a reason to like them for that reason. Mm. So, therefore, I have no stake, just like you were saying, Tony, in, like, caring about whether they get blown to smithereens or not. Yeah. They don't seem to have any extra intelligence or whatnot. The only thing I can say for them is that they have a creative way of killing people when they strap the doctor and Romana and everybody with those oh. vines that dry out in the sun. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, that's creative. At first, yeah. I was sad because they were like, oh, the seventh option is you just get thrown into a pit and rocks get tossed onto you. And I was like, well, that fucking sucks. But <laughs> then there was the vines. And I was like, OK, that's that's better. But otherwise, I was like, wah, wah, these these people are not interesting. I have questions about that vine torture myself because <laughs> there there's so much wrong with that, <laughs> which I'm sure we'll get into. And again, that's its own form of padding, really. But you're right, there doesn't seem to be much to swampy culture that makes it sound like something that should be preserved, is there? I mean, that sounds horrible, now that I say it out loud. That sounds like exactly what a colonialist would say, and yet Robert Holmes hasn't exactly given them this rich, vibrant culture. He's just given them this big old book that somehow they managed to keep from getting water damage and rot after thousands of years. And they worship a squid. Yeah. So Well, yeah, like they don't need to even have a rich, vibrant culture. They just need anything that's positive about them whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But as far as I can tell, they're xenophobic. They, they call all people who are offlanders like the dryfoot contemptfully they are suspicious they're mean they they torture they sacrifice mm -hmm. like literally when there, there were was not a single swampy character who did anything kind or patient or no i don't know cared about their planet i was wondering when that was coming right because they're like oh we're supposed to be leaching the planet dry some, somehow taking all this protein from the lake which i was like where the fuck is this coming from what <laughs> that was never answered i'm so confused i thought that somehow their relationship with kroll was actually going to be like mutually beneficial that would have been cool mm -hmm. right like they they talk so much about worshiping him and him being so important to them that I thought at some point we were going to find out they also fed off of the proteins that he was creating right. or them creating sacrifices allowed him. I mean, yeah, he's feeding off of the segment to the key to time, but somehow there was going to be a give and a take and there was going to be something that they did that instead of him just being like all destructive Cthulhu monster from the swamp, Kroll really was going to be something that, was a boon to them. Yeah. Now that could have been interesting, but the only problem is once the doctor transforms him into the segment, if it had gone that way, 
then the Swampies would have nothing keeping them alive. Then the Doctor would be a bad guy. Yeah, precisely. Though that would have been a much more interesting way to go. Yeah. I mean, he could have figured something else out. Maybe he could have, like, engineered some sort of biological replacement for Kroll. Or the technicians would have said, oh, well, we can, like, actually do this with our technology. And then they could have become friends. I don't know. The worst, worst plot solutions have, have been. <laughs> yeah. There's some little noise made at the end about Fenner staying there to try to help them. But you have to wonder what help he could actually be. And if Kroll's not there anymore, then that refinery is not going to be pulling any protein out of the ground anymore. So it seems like the only thing that can be said about the Swampies is that it's not easy being green. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm sorry I had to go there, but it's true. That they really don't have anything else distinctive about them at all. Yeah. And... Mm. That's so unlike Robert Holmes, because he's pretty good at world building. Let's get into the nitty gritty of this. Um, did you find that the prologue destroyed any sense of tension for you or suspense in just telling you up front what Kroll was and where he was and all of that? Not for me. I mean, it's, it's sort of like a, I always say this, I, I'm sure it has a, a fancy name. I don't know what it is, but it's sort of like a Romeo and Juliet kind of thing. Like, you know how the story is going to go. I saw him on the cover of the book. Like, I know what, <laughs> what Kroll is. I know there's going to be a big angry octopus in this story. So that was fine. I think I kind of liked how it set the mood a little bit. And I, I think along with Dalton's idea, like this prologue is vague enough that there could still be revealed some sort of symbiotic relationship after the fact. Uh, I don't think that it ruined that for me personally. Yeah, because on screen for a while in the story, there's at least the sense that maybe Kroll is a mythological creature and doesn't exist. Mm. And then the reveal comes and oh my God. And of course he's revealed as a really bad, you know, blue screen effect but still he's revealed and you realize oh it, this thing really does exist and this thing that was actually in this ancient book that details these ridiculously complicated ways of torturing prisoners oh god i'm sorry i'm just gonna have to go to that i really am because i can't get out of my head <laughs> this this vine torture how is it supposed to work because they're inside for one thing so the sunlight that's going to cause these vines to contract and stretch their vertebrae out like beads on a piece of elastic mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. can only get in through that window. And they're also on a planet that is said to have severe storms all the time. <laughs> yeah. So the sun is not constant. And apparently the window is so small and so high that you only get a thin beam of light anyway. So you'd only get it if the sun were directly overhead. So... I guess the torture is just letting them stay on that rack for days and days while they wait for the few hours a day that they're going to be stretched, and yet it's not presented like that on the page at all. No, they make it seem like it's going to be something that will happen in a few hours. Yeah. I also pictured in my head that the window was much larger than I'm sure it was on screen. I was picturing something closer to like a greenhouse or a conservatory, something that's maybe like the whole ceiling is exposed. Nah, it's itty bitty. It's <laughs> the silliest thing. Almost as silly as the doctor hitting a high note to break it. Oh, God. It's not that bad yet. I'll try pitch higher. What? 
Melba's party piece. Though she can only do it with wine glasses. First I was like, what the hell is this Melba story? And then like 20 pages later, I was like, oh, is that it? Okay. I also liked how the vines are described very like in detail with Ramana. She had been lashed bodily to the wooden framework by links of creeper. Now her feet stretched out in front of her were being tied to a kind of separate footboard that slid along the bottom. <laughs> then I was like, well then, okay. Um, and then later on, it, right next to it, it's like next to her, the doctor was being treated in the same way. So like, what? why don't we get the same bonded description of the doctor, assholes? <laughs> because he's not the female companion. <laughs> and boy, is she being put in the damsel in distress position in this book god there's gotta be a lot of doctor porn out there a lot of like doctor fan fiction come on there's there's literal doctor who porn out there in fact well actually here's the thing there is daleks porn (laughs) and it's softcore porn actually and i think it was produced in australia i'm sure my listeners know exactly what i'm talking about but it's from the early 2000s it's It's out there. We need to find out all about you, Ashlings. Your weaknesses, your desires. We will study your body in both. Every hole will be examined. <laughs> I even downloaded and watched it once. I was like, this is the most boring thing. And I love Daleks. <laughs> but I don't love them that much. Not in a you know katie manning jammed that thing between my legs sort of like i shouldn't say that that's how she poses with it in those photos it seems like it's jammed but it's not actually jammed at all (laughs) no in fact those photos are more titillating than the actual softcore porn with the daleks in that's hilarious yeah i don't know how we got there to be honest but there you are it was it was my fault as it usually is Um, but you're right tony yeah ramana does not have a very um strong showing in this one in this Stones of Blood, at least she was sort of entertainingly prim. Mm -hmm. Like she didn't want to walk across the moors in her high heels. And that was funny. And I thought that we'd be getting a little bit more of that here. But there really wasn't that much that was interesting from her. No. No. Uh, That was kind of disappointing. Yeah. And you can kind of see why the actress wanted to leave after the season, can't you? Because, Dalton, you remember from the last book, she's kind of put in the same position. Yeah, it's another... You know, the companion gets taken away and the doctor has to save them. And even once he gets her back and they're at the refinery, she does something stupid, like go stand by the window where Kroll is like going to break through. And so even that is uncharacteristic and just it doesn't seem like the Romana that was in the first story. And even the second story with her, there's no wonder why she's like, okay, I've had it. This is stupid. Like, you're not doing anything interesting with this character at all. Which is just bizarre, given that it's Bob Holmes writing both this one and the first one she appears in. So you'd think that she'd be given, you know, at least the same level of witty dialogue or what have you, but no, she's not even given that. Yeah. I could even see her trying to understand the Swampies from like an anthropological standpoint, trying to understand and see something from their perspective. Yeah, they may have kidnapped her, but she could try to, (laughs) I don't know, show that she has some worth to them to keep them from sacrificing her, but we don't get anything. Yeah. I was even surprised at the beginning that they refer to her as the time lady and girl companion. And I 
don't have my copy of Stones of Blood on me, but I was like, I could have sworn they did not introduce her that way in, in that book. They didn't. I don't think she was positioned as a companion, not at least in the text. Yeah, I think you're right. I think she is described as just... Uh, like a partner. Yeah, time lady. Assistant probably is the word that would have yes. been used. Yeah. Because here she's not being an assistant. She's barely assisting at all, which is just really sad. She does at one point go back to psychologically evaluating new people. <laughs> yeah. Which is something she did in that first story. But yeah, apart from that, this is not the Romano that we've known for this time. So it's just strange. It's also strange that she's the one that gets sent off to work while he fiddles around making himself a reed flute. When in the last story, he sent her off while he fiddled around fishing. Mm-hmm. It's almost the same start. She gets captured on that occasion, too. And it's like, uh, there's an unfortunate sameness that's starting to creep in. So it's just as well this is the next to last story of the season. It's really unfortunate when you're like, oh, good, this is ending soon because this is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Well, imagine watching this as a kid and this is like your third go through of key to time and you know this is coming and it's only going to be four nights it's only going to be you know like monday tuesday wednesday thursday and you know what's coming on friday and you're like yeah i'm fine but you have to sit through these four first (laughs) yeah yeah i think something else that i wanted to bring up was like even the whole premise of this like the way that we are introduced to these Dudes, the refinery, and then all of a sudden they're like, well, hey, you know, uh, I see something on the radar. You know who I bet it is? That guy with the guns. Uh, We better go out there and stop him because he's definitely trying to run these guns to the swampies. And I'm like, "Uh, this was all just kind of told to us. Like, we don't have any evidence as a reader that this is actually occurring. Like, it is all just narrated to us through the character's suppositions. Mm -hmm. And just very like i don't know ramshackly at that to the point that i'm like I, this whole conceit seems very flimsy like i almost don't believe that this is what's really going on like the the reason yeah. that they're given for for kind of leaping into the story i'm just like really is, is that that's what is happening now I, I mean i can assume that often what happens is somebody sees something on the map and it's the tardis but yeah. and of course that's what it is but then it really was what is his name? Ram, Ram Dutt. Ram Dutt. Yeah, it really, it really is Ram Dutt with the guns later at some point. So they weren't wrong. But I was like, how did they know? Like, how, how did they know that, that he was coming? And I don't know, yeah. something about this idea of like, well, all they needed was the guns to, <laughs> I'm like, do they not have like any swamp technology? Like, do, swamp technology. What, could they like sick the crawl on them? Like, I don't know. I just thinking like, if these people are, are so cool, then did they really need to wait for like, like how many guns did this one man bring like he's just like one guy (laughs) well and and there's only four of them in the refinery not that they're initially going to know that but like they have mention there and let's not even start on his name but they have they have a spy so they have someone on the inside that can tell them hey there's only four of these idiots working in here we could take them over we can stop them and yeah they may send more people from the planet but 
there could be so much more going on than just we're sitting around waiting for some guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I think that's a, that that's exactly it. That I just like was looking at this whole thing and being like, I just really don't believe that this is what's happening right now. Like this seems so flimsy a premise to to begin this narrative on, but whatever yeah and uh, not not to mention one of the people working in the refinery actually is a member of the sons of earth and he doesn't have any idea yeah these guns are being sent so it's like the whole subplot of thawne actually being the one uh, yeah it just falls apart and that's (laughs) actually something that got past me i had completely forgotten that dagin is considers himself one of the sons of earth and it's like wait wait what oh why would that be why (laughs) that doesn't make a lot of (laughs) sense at all and i can see what robert holmes is trying to do he was trying to do the james fenimore cooper type story where you had somebody who is trying to be a go-between between the white man and in this case the green man but that go-between is not a heroic character and sounds like some sort of character out of star wars and not a particularly good one at that yeah and if thawne wanted to get rid of the swampies that badly there are other more direct ways of doing it besides trying to figure out a way to tease them into making an attack on the refinery when they could just take out the refinery, as you said, anytime they wanted to. Especially if they think they've got this gigantic swamp god on their side to begin with, because they're not lacking in confidence. Yeah, there was like (laughs) some things that when people had lines, when characters said things, I just was completely confused as to where it was coming from. And I don't know, that's like a bad sign. Like, you should kind of be able to expect what people are going to say based on their motivations. Who who even is this? Like, Thawne, you know, that this is in, in the attack and the, the guys are kind of talking about what they should do. Harg, beginning to feel frightened. Shouldn't we send for reinforcements? Thawne, no, the government are too soft. I'm also like, who the hell is the government with a capital G? <laughs> the government is too soft. We must handle ourselves. We'll do it my way. Fender gave him a skeptical look. And what is your way? And I'm like, yeah, what is the way? We'll get rid of the problem once and for all. If you're talking about mass murder, I won't agree to it. I'm like, wait, what? what? <laughs> Where did the mass murder come from? <laughs> I'm like, these are, like you said, Dalton, four schmoes in like this plant. Like, where do they get a mass murder device from? Do they have nukes? Like, do they just store nukes on the planet? I was yeah. like, what the fuck? And of course, you know that they do. But <laughs> I just wasn't like a- anticipating that. Like... It was as if they could have said anything. If you're talking about the poison gas, I won't do it. If you're talking about, <laughs> I, I don't know, the sex death, I, you know, it just it came out of nowhere. I was like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. I don't know. Then they keep talking about this protein. And I'm like, do you know what is the least interesting thing in the world in a story is the protein content of a lake? <laughs> <laughs> Especially if it's coming from Kroll's poo or something. Yeah. yeah. And again, that's not even explained. I'm like, is it coming no. from his body? Is is this supposed to be implied that like he's just sort of slopping off protein? But if that's the case, why wasn't it put into the prologue that like Cole sensed that he was getting smaller or he was in pain or something was acidic in the water? Like we didn't get any clues about how that protein is related to him. Uh, all we they kept talking about was like, my God, man, this lake is full of protein. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Okay. Soylent green is crawl. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay. Um, 
I just yeah, it just doesn't yeah. make any sense. It really, oh. and I was like, is this just me? My, I really was questioning myself, but I, like, I'm glad to know that it wasn't just me. Yeah, no, it's not just you. I was just gonna say something else that uh, that I could not understand is so once once Kroll is like attacking and just like killing everybody, so they're running through the swamp with Ram Das, as I'm just gonna keep calling him. Um, <laughs> Because that's not his name, but close enough. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Yeah. So the doctor and Romana stop, but he keeps running and gets attacked and get, gets killed. But then immediately after that, the doctor and Romana keep running themselves. So like, ah, uh, yes. Kroll just decides not to get them, even though they're 15 feet away <laughs> and making just as much noise. And it happens like two or three times where like, oh, stop moving. And then someone else gets attacked. Oh, stop moving. Yeah. Oh, now we're going to move. But why Why is it not just grabbing everybody? <laughs> it's not like Tremors. Yeah. No. <laughs> it doesn't have that same sort of internal consistency that Tremors does. Yeah. <laughs> That's also got my favorite, like, part where, you know, this guy just fucking died. Uh, there was a dreadful bubbling scream, a squelching sucking sound, then silence. Romana covered her face with her hands. That was horrible, doctor. Horrible. The doctor put a consoling hand on her shoulder. Yes, it was. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, we know it's horrible. We don't need the narration to tell us it was horrible. Like, that was horrible. It, it adds nothing. And then he, like, redoes the whole thing. I told him not to move. Kroll hunts by surface vibrations, you see. Yeah, we see. We we have the brain capacity of a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't need to be told that <laughs> right. by this narration. That's why I was like, wow, it, did someone just say this has to be however many pages long? Because it really is way overwritten. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it does have that feeling. And I, I just am very surprised because Dix doesn't usually do this. I know Dix is better than this in terms of making these very basic storytelling mistakes. Well, bear in mind that at this point in his Doctor Who target career, he's essentially what's being called script to page. He's directly transferring what there is in the script to the page. And you've been fairly lucky, Jenny, in that you've read some of the books that he's done where he actually cares about the material. (laughs) Yeah. This is not one of those runs. Apparently not. It absolutely isn't. And you can kind of tell because you can see the quality of the book starting to spiral a little bit. In fact, I'll be very interested to see what the next one looks like because he had to have written these within months of each other. Mm-hmm. And he was probably just so sick of the key to time by that point, as we all were, that he was just like, okay, all right, fine. Oh, it's a Bob Holmes script. I like Bob. Oh, Bob's obviously not enjoying this, nor will I. Even the little witty bits are not nearly as witty as they could be, even though there are some times you can tell that Dix is trying to make his own fun a couple of times in the way he describes things. For instance, when he describes the tentacle at the very beginning of chapter four, the tentacle was a long skin-covered pole. Isn't it always? (laughs) Good lord. Yeah. When, as a writer, you're doing things like that in the exposition, you know you've got to be bored. Yeah. And I'm sure he was just bored out of his skull with this, because there's, apart from that prologue, which is always good, coming from Dix, and he even gives us an epilogue, so you can tell he's at least trying, but there's just not a lot here for him to work with, which is really unusual for a Robert Holmes script. It was 
completely devoid of fun moments. Well, let's talk about those. You mentioned this earlier, Tony. I thought it was funny that uh, Romana points out that callousness is from psychological trauma. That was funny. <laughs> I like the, the joke about, oh, well, convincing from the front. And then there was a quip about from the behind. Yes. Some good quips. I thought actually that in terms of a plot point, the fact that Ram Dutt cheated the Swampies by giving them bad guns was interesting. I, I didn't actually see that coming. And then I realized, oh, this must be a... You know, he must be in cahoots with the what's his name or, or just somebody who wants to wipe out the planet so that this would would go bad. I, I thought that that was a clever idea. I didn't think that that was was going to happen. So there were parts that I laughed at because I, I always do. The doctor is his usual jaunty self. Yeah, there's at least some witty dialogue, especially when the doctor gets reunited with Romana. The problem is he has to be reunited with Romana for us to get that dialogue. I mean, we get things like, there's no need to be so smug about it, Doctor. I'm not being smug. Oh, yes, you are. I can tell that expression even from behind. <laughs> yes, that was it. Yeah, yeah. Or when they uh, turn Kroll back into the piece of the key and he says, well, it's a rather special sort of stick. That, that was funny. <laughs> yeah, when they uh, stop the rocket from taking off and he says, if we're found loitering, somebody might put two and two together. Then they open the door and Thawne's there and he says, you're putting two and two together, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And they're back and forth during the torture. Yeah. I didn't like the bit about death according to one of the seven holy rituals, whispered Romana. What do you think they meant? Oh, just the usual stuff that said the doctor carelessly. Fire, water, hanging upside down over a pit of vipers. Romana shuddered. That's only three. We'll use your imagination. No, thank you. I prefer not to. <laughs> <laughs> there's just some lovely back and forth between them, but... There's just not enough of it. Not enough to really make this a Robert Holmes script, which is really unfortunate because even the bad Robert Holmes scripts have something special in them. We get no double acts in this one. There are no characters that are paired off with each other in any discernible way. The main bugbears of the whole piece are kind of just dull. And the monster is just there to be turned back into what it is. Yeah. Ugh. Do you know what the deal with Jemima is? Oh my god, you were going to bring that up, weren't you? I, um, <laughs> I'm just confused by it. Oh, chapter 8. Would you mind reading that bit? Because I, I have my suspicions about it, and they're, they're not very good ones. Deguin looked up from his weather instruments. The storm's breaking up fast now. Just dropped four points on the scale. Fenner gave a sigh of relief. A few billion volts in that one. It touched Force 20 at the height. One of the worst I've seen. Anyone on the lagoon wouldn't stand a chance. Well, there's not likely to be anyone on the lagoon, is there? Not with our friend Jemima prowling about. Yeah. I... Oh. Well, that name has a very unfortunate connotation in America, obviously. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the connotation is in Britain. And I really should have looked that up because I put it in the notes, obviously. But I honestly don't know why it's there. In fact, let me see if I can... Let's see. Jemima's a British name. Let's do a quick search for it. I know. I'm looking at it, too, and I'm not finding a lot. Apparently, it is much more of a given name in the UK than it is here, but I don't think that's what they mean either. I, I think he's referring to Kroll. Obviously, he's referring to Kroll, 
but why he's calling Kroll Jemima. I mean, that doesn't even make sense with the biblical derivation because uh, Jemima is actually one of the daughters of Job, and it comes from the Hebrew word for dove. And it doesn't make any sense in context there either. So if anybody, <laughs> and I mean anybody listening can tell us, we can bring it up on a future podcast. But I I got to that and I was like, he didn't just. Yeah, because I, yeah, I'm, I'm only really familiar with the American connotation of it. And I'm like, that, that doesn't make any sense. So yeah. For, for UK and Australian listeners, there is, is it a pancake mix or is it syrup? It's syrup. Fake maple syrup. Yes, there is a brand of fake maple syrup produced and sold here in the U- US called Aunt Jemima. And these days, it's not even going to be called that. They're going to change that. But for the longest time, the Aunt Jemima bottle depicted an African-American woman with the slang term for it is a do-rag, though it's actually more of a kerchief of the sort that would have been worn by slaves during the Civil War period. And the modern iteration of that artwork has that gone, and she's just an African-American woman on the bottle. But that word, that name, has that sort of racist overtone to the point that the company has had trouble with it for decades now. Yeah, the the bottle is literally shaped into the caricature of another more American, if you're from America, you know that the black mammy stereotype in the media depiction of a motherly, usually slightly overweight African-American woman who would be the cook or the maid and in this caretaking, consoling kind of position in the household and, you know, maybe gently chiding to people um, and usually a, a source of uh, affection to the main characters, usually white, but ultimately still definitely positioned beneath them in terms of power and also really really problematic in the sense that yeah like this was just a a kind of a powerless character to do whatever the the white people in the narratives wanted and the bottle is shaped like her so she's not even a real person she's just a vessel for the syrup (laughs) i thought that was mrs butterworth butter is mrs butterworth black i thought that was just i thought that was the bottle that's shaped like a woman oh is this one am i getting it wrong I, I, I don't think, I don't know. I Now I'm all confused. I don't Let's know. Let's find Aunt... out. I know Mrs. Butterworth is the one that's the shape of the bottle, but I don't know if Aunt Jemima ever had a bottle shaped like her as well. Oh, you're totally right. Hold on. Maybe I'm wrong about that. My bad. I'm conflating the two. There is still, however, plenty of, of troubling iconography associated with this. Um, right. <laughs> one has only to do a cursory Google image search to see the older advertisements and the artwork depicting <gasps> this character. Oh, I see what you mean now. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, I, so, I just found yeah, it I misspoke. Thank you, Dalton, for correcting me about that. I see it now. You're right, because holy shit. Oh, my God. That is... You're right. I think the bottles used to be shaped like her. So I think... Did they really? I believe so. I'm, oh, I no. may be wrong there. The new name of the product is Pearl Milling Company Butterrich Syrup. Which oh, interesting. I just know comes that. Okay. trippingly off the tongue, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, it's something else for the Republicans to complain about. I think when I read that in, in the story, I honestly just skipped over it because I thought there's this is the UK and I don't believe they sell the syrup there. And the, the story has made no reference as to 
I don't know, Kroll having a dark skin tone or <laughs> just, no. I just didn't see how this could possibly have been their implications. So I thought, oh, there must be another association with this that I is a Britishism that I'm not aware of. Well, I noticed that Terrence Dix does make another reference to the Red Indian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just yeah. part of the time, unfortunately. Yeah. He does give us a lot more background about the political situation that we don't get in depth on screen, but then it doesn't really matter on screen <laughs> yeah it uh, god mensch <laughs> yeah i can't get over that it's ridiculous the names in doctor who are always ridiculous but you've got swampy's name mensch and scart which i keep misreading as shart <laughs> there's just no way around it it's just ridiculous. It shows where my mind likes to go when I'm bored reading something. Yeah, was that like intentional? Because I don't know. I had to look this up, but I'm understanding that a mensch is Hebrew for a person of integrity and honor, but like mensch is a traitor. So yes. do we think that that was weirdly intentional? And I don't know why they would have done it. If it is, it's Robert Holmes operating on a level that the story doesn't deserve because he's trying to do ironic names. I mean, that might explain the Jemima thing, because if that's dove in Hebrew, you would not describe Kroll as a dove in any way, shape, or form. Oh, and this said Yiddish for, for Mensch. My bad. I... Yeah, I honestly, I just really, <laughs> I don't think that's happening. I really wish it were, because the weird thing about this book is that most people will tell you this book is an improvement on the televised story. <laughs> Yikes. Which tells you just how dire the televised story is, especially the ridiculous moments, such as Rankwin going into the pump room and this tentacle on a string, essentially, is waving around and he prostrates himself before it. And then gets, you know, sucked into the uh, <laughs> pipeline. And when the refinery crew offered the doctor a drink, he takes a sip of it, makes a face, and drops it into his pocket. Okay. And nothing is said about it at all. It's just a background bit of business that Tom Baker does. And that shows you how bored Tom Baker must have been with the script. Because if he's putting stuff like that in it, it's like, oh, okay. Oh, God. All right. Fine. Uh, is there anything else we want to say about this? Oh, the doctor telling K-9 to get down? Isn't K-9 always down? Yeah. It's... <sighs> in, in the beginning, when you were talking about Andrew Zatara, we've done a, an episode in between this, so I forgot that was the last book. So I think it's funny that we end Android Zatara with K-9 being on the raft, not being able to tread water, and then we go directly into this story, which is a world of water, again, where K-9 is basically useless. <laughs> so that's kind of like telegraphing that. Mm -hmm. You see a pattern emerging. In fact, you're going to see that pattern going on where K-9 is just a little too useful. My ex from hell used to refer <laughs> to the fact that the doctor needed to have a phaser. Yes. And of course, it's like, yeah, well, he kind of has one now. It's called the sonic screwdriver. Yeah. But K-9 is just a little too useful as a plot contrivance, and you have to come up with other plot contrivances to keep him out of the action. And the next producer is going to get to the point where he's just like, you know, fuck it. And he's going to try to destroy him in every single story. 
until he finally gets rid of him. Mm-hmm. You can see even here that riders can't always use him, and with something like this, you can't use him. Androids of Tara, you could to some degree. Yeah, but that's true of all companions, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, they eventually outlive their usefulness. Yeah, just kidnap the dog in every story. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there anything else we want to say or point out about this book before we go to Goodreads? One last thing. Yes. I'll have to reverse the polarity and fuse the entire mechanism. <laughs> We're back in the Pertwee era. Yep. Yeah, you don't normally hear that phrase trotting out of Tom Baker's mouth, but when you do, you know it's somebody that wrote for John Pertwee, and sure enough. Just need a quick fix, you know. (laughs) Just to remind us of better days. (laughs) Days that were so much better. I just like, I don't know, how like horrifically talky and and exposition-y this story is. Like three, three quarters of the way through the thing, everything's going to shit. Um, There's the storm, you know, on the planet, and... We have the God love him, Thon here. Thon clenched his massive hands on the metal rail below the window. He would not fail. Despite the storm, the monster in the lagoon, the hostile swampies, and the interfering fools on Delta Magna, the refinery would succeed. One day, a dozen others would line the shores of the Great Lagoon, feeding the hungry millions, making him the most respected and honored scientist on Delta Magna. Thon was an intense, lonely man. <laughs> you don't say. What does that mean? <laughs> intense, lonely man invested his whole career in the refinery project. It could not, must not fail. I'm like, oh, okay, why did we just get this really like... I don't know. I just, for some reason, was imagining this in, like, the color tone of all of the Twilight films of Mm -hmm. this, like, rat bastard standing on the whatever, clenching the metal rail and looking very tortured. You know, he's got, like, a constipated Robert Pattinson look on his face. (laughs) He was intense and lonely. And I'm just like, oh, just go ahead and die already. Like, I'm so ready to be done with this narrative. Um, (laughs) I could not give fewer shits for the intense and lonely fawn. Interesting you should bring that up because at that moment I was like, oh, you know, this could have been made into something like a Moby Dick type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where Kroll is always known about, and Thawne is basically Ahab trying to destroy it because he wants to be successful. And after a while, the destruction of Kroll becomes a thing in and of itself rather than just a means to an end. And you can tell that Robert Holmes is barely interested in telling a James Fenimore Cooper story. You know, I guess it's ironic because, like, Thawne is doing something good. Like, I just said it myself out of my mouth that he wants to feed like hungry people that's yeah. <laughs> actually a really nice thing to well, do well he also is trying to get a reputation out <laughs> and of yet it. i like don't care yeah and we really don't yeah we honestly don't because once kroll is gone they're not going to be able to feed those starving millions on delta magna and god only knows what's going to happen to the swampies now but who cares we've got our segment to the key to time and we never have to see these people ever again so long sucker <laughs> yes or wonder how it is that they don't get athlete's foot from running around <laughs> on wet ground all the time and bare feet especially bare green feet it's the number one cause of death that's probably why they're green they're just covered with fungus yeah oh god what a horrible thing well we we can't forget the tiny squid-like creature that they do find at the end so that's kind of like a little yes. hope for the swampies but why is that hopeful 
Why should we care? It's going to be hundreds of years before it gets big, if it ever gets big. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. It'll mature, and then it'll eat another high priest, and you'll have another schism in the religion or something, I guess. But yeah. Christ. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's something. I guess. <laughs> we are really grasping at straws, aren't mm -hmm, we? Mm -hmm, oh, mm -hmm. my goodness, yes. All right, shall we go to Goodreads? Please. I think it's time. Yes. I really think it's time. As we always do, and we've never wanted to more than now, let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.18. It may surprise you to know that's a bit lower than the book surrounding it. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry everyone, we keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives it 2.5 stars and says, again, another book that's better than the TV version. Fairly well paced and easy to read, nothing too taxing, and a little dark in places. I, I, I guess. <laughs> I think somebody got their head blown off. Um, yeah, yeah, the swampy. Yeah, that was a bit much, but true. Also in our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it three stars and says, like the previous story, the TV version of the story ranged from great location to dodgy monster. The location in this case was bleak rather than lush, and to those of us who've not lived in similar surroundings, at least alien-esque. I love that word. Sadly, I don't think the book captures this, though I'm not sure that would be entirely possible. There's a definite improvement to the monster, though. Whereas on Tara, the rubbish monster costume was a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment, Kroll is a major part of the story, and the failure of the special effects is difficult to ignore. The giant Kroll with less than entirely convincing CSO is of its time and doesn't distract me too much, but the shots of people being attacked by a single tentacle were redolent of the end of Spearhead from Space, and I half expected to see Pertwee and Kroll's coils gurning for all he was worth. Yeah, that's a callback to another Robert Holmes story. <laughs> Thankfully, the book spares us all that, and the embarrassment of the Swampies, too. There's a hint of casual racism with these green skins, or should that be native Delta Magnons? Oh, I see what you did there. The parallel with Native Americans being forced onto reservations then harassed to make them leave is obvious, and with hindsight perhaps a little clumsy. In the book it seems a little more subtle, probably because its prose and the cartoonish side of actors painted green doesn't impede. Several Swampies also have some internal dialogue in the book, whereas their on-screen counterparts, while occasionally possessing cunning, aren't all that bright. This book isn't a literary masterpiece, but there are for me plenty of improvements to the TV version, though not so drastic as to make the story unrecognizable. And finally, Stephen Andreechen gives it four stars and writes, I have always loved the key to time season of Doctor Who, so I was excited when a lot of Target books came my way and had one of the novelizations. It was The Power of Crawl. While initially disappointed, the novel made me fall in love with the story. Taron Sticks once again delivers an engaging book and creates a sense of atmosphere that was not seen on screen. The themes and parallels the story has to American history with regard to the treatment of indigenous peoples is brought to the forefront and is delivered in a way the target audience, I see what you did there, the target audience would understand. Okay, you're seeing more there than I am, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. So, Dalton. Out of five stars, how many would you give this? I'm going to give this one a two. 
Mm. Uh, lord i just there's not a lot here that i really care about even the monster it just doesn't seem that big of a deal Mm -hmm. i don't know something about crawl just never felt as menacing as it should to me yeah there there wasn't a whole lot of suspense with it even the moments you know where romana is supposed to be sacrificed to it and we see a tentacle it just nothing ever really felt that high stakes for me, like we said earlier, the book is just kind of a lot of back and forth until something happens. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of machinations to make things happen that don't really have any larger effect on the story. So two for me. Okay. And Jenny? I feel like I'm going to go two as well. It's not quite as bad. And I'm trying to remember that one that was like the plants in the greenhouse and the lasers. Seeds of doom. Yeah, that one. It's not- <laughs> That one lives in my brain as just truly incohate, but but it approaches that. There were parts of it more on a story level, like Dalton was saying that I was just like, this doesn't come together. So yeah, two for me. And it would have to be a two for me as well. And it's interesting oh, wow. that you should bring up Seeds of Doom because the Kroll monster looks very much like the crinoid from Seeds of Doom. Uh, but the difference there is that with Seeds of Doom... On screen, you have a really tense, well-acted, well-directed, pacey type of story that really is frightening. And Power of Kroll isn't. So I'm not surprised by all of the people who have said, oh yeah, it's improved on the page. The sad part is, it is improved on the page. That shows you how lacking the original story is. There's just not much there, and unless you can see Kroll, it's not all that impressive. You at least can draw him in your own mind as this horrific monster, but even on the page, he doesn't seem all that horrific. He just seems like something that occasionally shoots up a tentacle, a um, skin-covered pole, and (laughs) drags you down and eats you or whatever, and it's like, eh, okay, I can do without. Yeah, two for me as well. Well, thank you all. Yep. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we'll be doing a brand new holiday special covering three, count them, three stories selected from the 1980 Doctor Who annual, which features Romana and K9. A link to the PDF copy can be found on our main page at soundcloud.com in the description of this episode and in the description of the holiday special itself when it's released. Read it if you dare. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordolic at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.